Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. And in each episode, I delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. In this episode, I speak with Ploy Pirapokin of Newfound Journal, and I start deep, jumping right into discussing estrangement for writers. She also talks about writing through immigration status and her genius visa. There is a lot of laughter in this episode, and I know because I edited the episode and there are big bursts of them that I had to tone down so they don't blast your eardrums. I hope you find Ploy's joy as infectious in the best way as I did during our interview. Ploy Pirapokin is the nonfiction editor at Newfound Journal and the co-editor of The Greenest Gecko, an anthology of new Asian fantasy forthcoming from Wesleyan University Press in 2021. Welcome to the podcast, Ploy. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. It is my pleasure. I'm really excited to be talking to you Again, we spoke before when you were a guest in the Let My Glove course. Mm-hmm. And so I guess as a result, I'm just going to jump right into the middle of things with you and say um, and ask you a bit about estrangement. I know that's a topic that we, when we were setting up the podcast, we said, um, you know, I said, this is something of interest and you said it's of interest to you too. So for me, writing is often a way to say, hey, I exist and to counter some of the dominant family narratives that erase my perspective. And with that, of course, comes this tension and can lead to estrangement. And I'm wondering about your own experience with writing and what relationship do you have with estrangement when it comes to your writing and your life? I think that all writers write because of this feeling of being estranged or alienated or a little different. I think when you're younger, To me, the markers of writing is when you're told that you're too sensitive, when you are slow to have comebacks. So let's say a bully calls, you know, you're fat and it takes you about three minutes to come up with something to say because you've spent that three minutes reflecting on yourself. Am I fat? Do I look fat? What does fat mean? Is that wrong? You know, and I think these are markers that make a writer because you're, you know, thinking about what makes you you, you know, what values you hold, your beliefs, you're reflecting on it, you're challenging it. And so all of these things, I think, 
make a writer. I'm not saying that, you know, you can't write without feeling estranged. Although I think that your work just wouldn't feel that urgent and that need to connect and that need to, like you said, to, to exist and to be seen. And I think as time grows and we grow as writers, that, hey, I exist changes as well to, hey, I exist, do you see me? Hey, I exist, so do you. And it becomes more of a connecting device as opposed to a statement. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I'm definitely recognizing those three minutes it takes for a comeback. <laughs> I'm wondering what kind of advice then, because I know you, you teach as well, and and obviously you're editing and, and giving feedback sometimes to writers on their work. So what advice do you give to writers facing estrangement for their transgressive words, the writers who are saying, like you said, I exist, you know, don't erase me. And I want to connect with, with you, the audience in some ways. But then, of course, there's that, that reaction that can happen to transgressing. Mm -hmm. I think in nonfiction in particular, I always advise my students and I know other teachers and editors say the same thing, too. It's not writing for revenge and not writing to make yourself look, I guess, like always the best, always right, infallible, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I do think to clarify what transgressive means, you know, it's um, if you're writing out of anger or out of revenge, that could be a really good catalyst to start. Certainly for me, it's a huge catalyst to start. And I always threatened my parents when I was younger that all of these things that you say would make such great dialogue if I wrote it in a story, um, which is so funny because my first, I think, essays and stories are all about fights with my parents. <laughs> and I think it can't stop there, right? Like you can't just say, I was right. I'm the writer. I get to write this down. You have no say. And so to move away from that, I think to face estrangement or transgressive words, it's if you're trying to be yourself and somebody has an issue with you just existing. So whether you're talking about race or whether you're talking about gender or sexuality, I think when the when it feels like you're being alienated or excluded just for existing, I think you do hit a very important thing that you have to say. And so my advice at that point is, you know, do you want to give someone that opportunity to write that narrative for you? Or are you willing to be erased by somebody else who thinks that you don't deserve to exist? When it comes to political, I think, uh, ramifications, I definitely have had fear about that as well for myself. I'm Thai and we're not supposed to talk about the monarchy. And I've chosen just to sidestep that as in, I, it's not worth the risk for me. I think that every writer should have that have that chance um, to decide for themselves. And I do think that publishing, especially in a very white centric, Eurocentric language, you know, English, they need to understand that that there is no one way of being a certain type of writer from a certain country or the things that you know writers are expected to talk about when they're not white. And so mm -hmm. that's my my point of uh, contention where, you know, not every Thai author, for instance, is going to talk about the monarchy and, and nor should they, especially when they do have serious political ramifications. Um, should they even mention 
a king or mention the monarchy in general. And I think it applies for, you know, writers of other countries too, you know, whether it's China talking about the government, whether it's any of the Arab countries, I think talking about their governments and their people. So my advice is, you know, to really contend, you know, will, am I willing to let somebody else write my narrative? Am I willing to be erased? And then if so, if so, you know, what would I be okay with being uh, remembered for or, you know, sharing? Mm. Yeah, I love how you bring in, I mean, all the considerations required. It's not just a black and white case. It's writing with, you know, having more sensitivity around that and how you want to be remembered. Yeah. And another thing that we talked about for when we're talking about possible topics with this interview, we were talking about writing through fear and surprise. And this really ties into what you've been saying as well, because for you, it's writing through immigration statuses, which feels, it seems to me, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, it's like estrangement writ large. Can you tell us about your genius visa, what you described in another interview as the arduous process of waiting and constantly proving my worth? Mm -hmm. Thank you for anointing me as a genius. (laughs) (laughs) I would have done that without knowing about the visa. (laughs) (laughs) I I really feel like it changed me um, completely as a writer and where I focused on. And I know we were talking in our in the in the class with you about worth right and and fear in writing so i know we'll get to that later but for me it it was definitely change life changing and perspective shifting so you know first of all as you write in general you want to be published you want to be read widely and then there are these sort of demarcations of success that whether the MFA tells you, you know, these are things to look for, whether it's mentors that tell you, whether it's other authors at workshops. And so you have this idea, I think, as a literary writer, and for me, fiction, um, that I must print in journals, you know, I must have this kind of teaching job um, in order to make it like the authors that I liked before me, I need to do these kinds of fellowships. And the visa requirements, especially for the O-1 visa, um, require a lot of awards. You need awards, you need recommendation letters, you need, I mean, like 20 recommendation letters, you need five job offers, you know, a lot of requirements that go into this. And then you start to realize that for, for me, in my case, you know, am I writing to be published, right? Am I writing to win these awards or am I writing for myself? And I spent that sort of year before I had to apply just building my resume. And it honestly felt quite soulless. And obviously I have it, which is why I'm here, but it really changed my relationship to, well, what does it mean to be successful? And, you know, how, when it's constantly proving my worth, it's like, well, what does this actually mean to me? You know, why am I writing this, right? Am I writing this for a byline? Am I applying for this fellowship? Because, it works for my resume or are all these things actually helping my writing, helping me become clearer in my words, helping me find more exact phrases for the feelings that I want to talk about. And then what's so funny is that once I got the visa, other people obviously wanted to connect with me who were also looking for the visa. And then 
some of them would say like, you know, what's your process? Can I ask you for advice? Sure. And then they would make a comment like, well, it must be easy since you got it. And I, (laughs) (laughs) and I would be like, okay, sure. Like go, go forth. (laughs) But I think because, you know, when you think of the list of people who do have this visa, you know, Salman Rushdie, or I want to say Ian Lee had it, it's, they have these big careers, but I think it's the work ethic that comes from this immigration status that instills like, you know, this is just how you have to do it. But then you have to find within yourself, you know, what actually makes me happy. And I think when Mm. others are, are seeing me, you know, I'm young, I'm, you know, sort of, you know, I don't come from a literary family or I don't come with connections in that way. Um, it seems possible. And so I'm happy that I can inspire that possibility. <laughs> but it definitely <laughs> took a lot of my soul and it took um, a lot of changes for me to understand, like, why am I doing this? And this access to having this visa allows me to remain in America to write, but also to, you know, participate in the American arts and letters in a way that I wouldn't have the opportunity to if I didn't apply. You first connected with Newfound, the journal, by entering a contest and then kept that relationship going. And one thing led to another. This is the story anyway that I was reading a bit more about online. I'm wondering, can you tell me more about that relationship? And especially, you know, especially now that you're an editor, how do you foster relationships with writers? And what would you suggest writers do to build relationships and support for their writing? Mm-hmm. I think it goes back to this, the notion of the visa for me. Um, one of the requirements of the O-1 visa is you need to have about 10 to 20 recommendation letters. And where would you get that? You know, <laughs> where would you get that if you didn't make friends or you didn't foster relationships with other artists? Um, mm. And I think, you know, at work, let's say you work in an office Um, you want a harmonious cubicle life. You don't want to anger your neighbor next door by playing too loud music or, (laughs) you know, eating your (laughs) Cheetos really loud. And I think it's the same with writing, except writing. I think we don't get to see our colleagues day to day. Our colleagues are on the internet or they're based elsewhere. And, you know, how do you foster relationships with other writers? One way is to submit. One way is to try to put your work out there and know that whether or not it's accepted doesn't change the fact that somebody had taken the time to read your work and somebody had taken, you know, their time to consider your work for publication or an award or panels and that it's a real human being on that other side. And when you receive a rejection or an acceptance, it's somebody who had considered and believed in you and really thought about, you know, whether this opportunity was right for you or not. And I think to remember that that is also a person. So to how to build relationships, I think submitting work, I think offering support yourself, right? It's like making friends like, oh, this person seems, you know, if you go to a workshop or if you take an online class, right? And there's somebody in that class who seems like they match you or they align with you in terms of reading list and the way they are thinking. Don't be shy to reach out. 
I think that's something that as instructors, I'm sure you can agree. We try to foster that, but Mm -hmm. writers are usually introverted and sensitive. (laughs) So, (laughs) so how do you put them, how do you push for the students to, you know, form their own alumni group afterwards or connect with one another that they feel special? I think in terms of offering, you have to offer to be someone's reader, um, and then vice versa, right? It's it's not a take and take relationship. Um, mm. You know, when Newfound reached out and was speaking to me about editing my at the time the chat book, um, I I was responding back like, let me know how else I can be involved. You know, just because I really liked them as people. And so that's how one thing led to another. And I think that's how we can build relationships in our community as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe not by questioning why, how easy it was for you to get the visa would be a way not to build relationships. (laughs) (laughs) I, I feel it's, I do think I was thinking about this question deeply that there seems to be, um, and maybe it's in our culture, you know, our culture of sensationalism, our culture of celebrity, that bad writing behavior or bad people behavior is rewarded. Um, and I'm sometimes myself even shocked by the lack of professionalism amongst other writers, um, mm-hmm. just like plain common sense, you know, and I think it is to do with celebrity isms, you know, when you have a very, let's say a famous writer or a well-known writer and they can act poorly without consequence. The enfant terrible kind of Yeah. Idea, right? And it's just not cute. I yeah. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I do I do think at least with communities I'm a part of, like we do put our professionalism in front because it allows for us to work together. It allows for us to collaborate. And it also doesn't get our, I guess, like personal feelings involved, which I just feel, well, it's like a workplace. (laughs) It's like going to work. (laughs) This episode of the Write, Publish and Shine podcast is brought to you by LitMag News Roundup. Presented by Becky Tuck, writer, editor, teacher, LitMag enthusiast, LitMag News Roundup lets you stay up to date on all the latest news in the LitMag world. Learn about exciting new magazines, calls for submissions, job and fellowship opportunities, and find out which magazines are closing, meet new editors, keep up with trends in LitMag publishing, discover fabulous opportunities for publishing your work. You can do all that when you subscribe at litmagnews.substack.com. That's litmagnews.substack.com. And this episode is also brought to you by my course, LitMag Love. If you have been avoiding submitting your writing for years because it feels so daunting, my five-week course will teach you the steps you must take to publish your work and help you take those steps with lots of support from me. Come and get a big yes for your writing from a dream journal, and then another, and then another. In the Lit Mag Love course, you will join a warm community of writers. You'll get helpful advice and support at your fingertips. And Lit Mag Love alumni have published in 200-plus journals and anthologies. Find out more and register at rachelthompson.co slash litmaglove. That's rachelthompson.co slash litmaglove. So speaking of your work at Newfound, Newfound publishes work about place. And I'm wondering if we can turn to the writing that you're reading that's being submitted to the journal. And can you tell me 
of what places you have loved going to when reading submissions and what places you'd like to go, meaning what kind of submissions you'd like to receive? Mm-hmm. I had mentioned in your class that I like the non-literal take on place. So, you know, avoiding travelogues, avoiding um, compare and contrast, I guess, with two physical places, just because I think it's the first uh, cliched or generalized thinking of when, when you see the word place. And so I really mm-hmm. am interested in the writer or the author's ingenuity in on the subject matter and where they can take us and make real for us, perhaps the places they're talking about, whether it's an emotional place, whether it's a dream place, a virtual place, um, and the list goes on and on. I just think to avoid the very general or first cliche thought about what that word means. Um, In terms of how literature is changing and the scope is expanding, I do think that because our department and then also I think our masthead is becoming more inclusive in terms of, let's say we are the gatekeepers. Um, We are getting a lot more work that is more diverse and covers more difficult topics, I think, of identity. Um, It's not just an immigrant, let's say, a a essay about, you know, old world traditions versus new world traditions. Now we're questioning whether those new world traditions are actually helpful or harmful or part of systemic racism, for instance. Um, Mm. We're looking at imperialism. I think there's an essay that I really like that was more scholarly um, that we just published that was looking at the dominant culture, let's say Indian culture, to these group of Himalayan um, farmers and how climate change has changed their way of farming and way of life, but also how capitalism and also the dominant culture has changed the values of what they they want in their agriculture. So I do think the scope is expanding in that sense, maybe because of who these authors see is in charge and willing to take more risk with their work. Um, so that's what I would say that, you know, even in the literary sphere now, we're seeing a lot of black editors, um, finally, you know, becoming vice presidents of publishing houses, agents who are more diverse. And I think that will change what type of work will be accepted, you know, so late in the century. Mm. And Another form of diversity, I guess I always feel like I want to address, too, is like around age, too. So a lot of writers I work with are like me, not millennials. I'm Gen X. And they often feel like they're not trending when it comes to what editors want. Any thoughts on this attitude? Is it right? Is it changing? Or sometimes I wonder if even that's the wrong focus, but... Yeah, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. It is the wrong focus, um, but it is easier for a millennial to say that, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> but but here here's why I strongly believe that writer writing in general, there is no age to be a writer. I definitely think, and I'm sure I'm going to get harpooned for this, but I don't think 
anyone in their early 20s has anything of weight and substance to say. And it's not to say that they can't feel that way or they don't have anything, but your mind, your, your mind and your heart and your mental health is still figuring itself out. And I do think there's an urgency with earlier work, but, you know, to be sort of sound in terms of your career and validation, you know, seeking validation or, and not, I think you should be a bit older, um, and have a little more experience with life and have a little more perspective that writing is not do or die. So I don't think there are any, there is or are any limitations when it comes to age. I do think we have a culture in terms of capitalism and success. And again, back to celebrity and sensationalism that privileges the young, but that is not to say that it has anything to do with the writing. When you think of writers who have published later, it's actually quite the norm. You know, Toni Morrison Mm. didn't publish until her forties. Roxane Gay was writing all this time and didn't publish until later. Yona Harvey, who's a poet, you know, didn't publish and write for Marvel, um, the Black Panther series until her forties. And I think a lot of women in particular, you know, you know, sort of women, um, they have to do a lot of caretaking before, you know, whether it's getting an education, whether it's taking care of your parents, whether it's getting married and having children, all of these things that sort of set back that time that they could have been studying writing and and learning how to write and publishing that men don't have, um, you know, biological men don't have because they are not asked to take a stop or to consider or to think otherwise. Um, so I don't think there is, that's why I say it's the wrong focus. I I think one way to think about it is to sort of overcome that fear is to really, and it's hard, right? Cause you have to confront yourself. What, why are you writing and what are you trying to gain from it? Because if you're in your forties and you want to have a Vogue cover shoot, um, <laughs> with your book <laughs> and you then want to be in the national book awards, you know, 35 under five under 35, then it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. You might actually get the vote cover, <laughs> but, but I think you can't hold yourself, um, to these standards that just don't make sense. Um, what is five under 35, right? You know, what are these age fellowships, you know, what are they trying to say? And I, I think it's just the wrong focus, but it is easier said than done. Um, I just think, look at to the writers who publish later. I always think that, um, you know, the more experience you can offer in terms of exactitude in your writing, um, the more nuance you become fame that comes with writing and celebrity Tedum and sensationalism is, I, I'm sure you can want it, but there are better careers to get that first. Yeah. Yeah. Like what you say too, about really thinking about what you want from your writing career. And I wonder too, you know, you're talking about the urgency of the, the the 20 something might feel around publishing, but I feel like you know, everyone has that urgency. They just have to kind of tap into what is the urgent thing that they want to say, the the thing that they don't want to have erased. So I really appreciate that answer. I, one of the most helpful advice I've ever received was 
um, from Kelly Link um, is to look at the writers that you admire. Let's say whose career you admire and you'd like, and then really track. And usually it's in the acknowledgement pages of their books, you know, who their agents are, you know, where they've published, where they've gone perhaps to school or workshops. And then if you think your style is like them, you know, this is not the only template, but it is a sound template. And so when you gather about three or five, you get to see the patterns. And so I think it's to get really realistic. You know, if I'm writing lyrical essays, which is what I do, it's not something that's going to go viral on the New York Times, um, unless I write one of those very structured personal essays. And to to really get a grip with reality that, you know, this is how the market is. They're not fans, of, not they're not fans, but it's not as viral. Um, lyrical essay is not as viral as a very structured, you know, I learned this type of personal essay and mm. and to be okay with that. For me, when I looked at all of my sort of literary idols whose careers I admire, I realized, for instance, they don't have social media. They, right. they are not online at all. And it really changed how I felt about this advice about having to have social media and have a big following and clout and all of this. Um, mm. And I just felt, I feel at this point, it's like, it's not conducive to my writing. It makes me worried and engage in a way with other writers and fans that I may not need to, um, to, in order to be the writer that I desire. And I think looking and modeling after perhaps writers that you admire, you, you, it's like reality, you know, of like, well, what does it mean to write this way? And what does it mean for me? Like that I'm willing to do this. Hmm. Yeah. And where can you find your readers? I I love that you're saying this now about social media and not being, because this is all the things that I think so many of us are, I definitely know I'm reflecting on too, is like, it's not, not just not conducive to maybe our writing, but to our humanity it feels like sometimes too. So thanks for saying that. So one thing I think, you know, based on our conversations, and you can correct me, but I think we agree that writing is one way we can change the status quo. It's the power we have to create the world we'd like to see. And I'm going to quote you again from an interview where you said, I'm not going to protest on the streets because if I get caught, I could get deported, but I'm going to find ways where my skills and my experience could be more helpful and useful. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you use writing, I guess, and and, and maybe other skills that can create that change? Yeah, I think, you know, leaning into my just what am I good at? I want to say Melissa Phoebos had an essay on Catapult that was, you know, do you want to be known for your emails or for your writing? Right. And, <laughs> and it really, it's like, <laughs> I believe in the same thing. Do I want to be known as you know, an activist who's exiled or as a writer? Um, mm -hmm. And where would I put my efforts in that case? What does it mean to be a writer for me? It's somebody who produces and somebody who challenges even my own point of view and what I believe in the work in the hopes that it connects with someone else on that same thought train or connects with someone else who's grappling with with the same explorations of ideas and themes and also that they can comment back, you know, and it could be a conversation rather than a 
close statement. Um, and that's what I would rather spend my time on in terms of being helpful and useful, I guess, in a more quiet way. Um, definitely this year, I think we've all seen a lot of Black Lives Matters movement, um, defund the police, um, sort of anti-authoritarianism, you know, walks and a lot of activism as it so happens because we're all in lockdown and because our attentions are drawn to the things that we might have otherwise ignored for our lives. But I also think what comes with that is a lot of unnecessary shaming. You didn't do X, Y, and Z, you know, you didn't come out or what does it mean when you're not outwardly supporting? And I, and I just think that's the dark side of activism. I think people contribute in many different ways, whether it's teaching, whether it's for me offering services through nonprofits where I help edit work or workshop stories um, as part of a fundraiser. You know, I think there are other ways that you can get involved and offer your services that aren't necessarily marching on the street, even though that is important too. I asked Ploy to prepare a reading based on our subjects for the interview today. Ploy Pierpokin reads from her award-winning lyric essay, How to Be Extraordinary in America. One, the O-1 Extraordinary Alien Visa, aka the Genus Visa, is granted to an alien who possesses extraordinary ability in the sciences, arts, education, business, or athletics, and who has been recognized nationally or internationally for those achievements. To qualify, you either produce your Nobel Prize certificate, do they even give certificates, or meet three out of the 10 requirements that are equivalent to a Nobel. You begin the process of obtaining this elusive immigration status after graduating from your MFA in fiction from San Francisco State University with feverish optimism and hope since Justin Bieber has one. You have one year from August 2015 until your student visa expires. One year to figure out how you can stay in America as a writer. One year before saying goodbye to the life you thought you built in graduate school. You are 27 years old, tall, tanned, and Thai, with as limited an octave vocal range as the Biebs. You think you stand a chance. Two, you Google artists with O1s. The list is daunting. Adele, Benedict Cumberbatch, Wolverine, director of The Terminator, Regina George, Posh Spice, David Beckham, Sergey Brin, Pele, Playboy Playmate Shara Bashard, Albert Einstein, if he were crossing the border today. These aliens are part of a list of Nobel, Oscar, Emmy, Directors Guild, SAG, and Academy Award winners. Even the Biebs, six years younger than you, has a Grammy. Discouraged, you try to find authors who have O1s, Salman Rushdie, Yun Lee, Mario Vargas Llosa. They were bookless once. You discover many testaments to how difficult this Everest of a visa is, and almost all O-1 visa holders ask to remain anonymous about their immigration statuses, as they will need to renew their visas at some point. No O-1 alien is confirmed, so you make a guess since they weren't born in America. Keeping this a secret is like being at a party with little green antennae sprouting from the top of your head, except everyone is too polite to point and scream. Thank you. Thank you. And so I'm going to uh, finish with, you're going to be the inaugural quick lit round person. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see how it goes. This will be a test, but I want to ask you if you will finish 
the following sentences. So first is being a writer is fun. Literary magazines are transgressive. Ooh, I like that. Editing requires patience. Mm. Rejection for a writer means God's redirection. (laughs) And finally, writing community is welcoming. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me today, sharing your genius with me today and and reading for our, our listeners. Thank you so much, Rachel, for having me again. My pleasure. And that is my interview with Ploy Pierpokin of Newfound Journal. I hope you laughed as much as we did. I hope you learned something. I know for sure I learned some thing from the real talk that Ploy gave us about focusing on age and whether your writing is on trend and how that's the wrong approach to look at careers of writers you admire and kind of reverse engineer them, figure out where they started and what journals they published in, what was their trajectory towards becoming the author that you love today. But most importantly, I think what she said about finding within yourself what actually makes you happy, I felt like that was, you know, the biggest nugget for this interview, it is really easy to get swept up in what you think it means to be a writer versus doing what is truly aligned with who you are, what you write, why you write. And here is the LitMag lowdown on Newfound Journal. You can find Newfound, an online journal at newfound, just the two words, dot org. And they pay and they also respond generally within three months. Their submissions are open except for May 15th to August 15th. That's, of course, everything is as of this recording. That may change. And there's an upcoming themed issue. Deadline 21st of December is not too late as of the release of this episode to submit to Inner Spaces. This episode of Write, Publish, and Shine is brought to you by LitMag News Roundup. Stay up to date on all the latest news in the LitMag world at litmagnews.substack.com. And by LitMag Love, my five-week course that helps you get a big yes from a journal you love. Sign up at rachelthompson.co slash litmaglove. Finally, if you want to advertise something that would help emerging writers who are becoming published authors, uh, hit me up at rachelthompson.co slash ads. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is presented by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about all of that I do for writers to help them write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. If you learned something from this episode, if it helped you with your own writing, pass it along and share it with other writers. You could also rate and review this podcast. It really does help other writers find the podcast. And I'd be so grateful to you for that. And just keep on keeping on, keep writing. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.